You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. On today's episode, I have a great guest, Rendell Eric, and we'll be diving into the finer details of his latest public land Iowa hunt from this year where he shot an absolute giant which is also becoming a fairly regular occurrence for him, it seems. One thing that becomes very apparent in this discussion is his attention to detail for all the little things like access, wind, thermal pull, picking the right tree in the right spot in the right tree for the first time going in, figuring out what the hottest food source is on that current day, being able to stay hidden when other deer are going through while he's waiting for that big one. It's pretty clear throughout the whole entire process and his attention to detail, along with knowing what things are truly important and which ones aren't, are what really helps drive the annual success. Before we dive into the discussion, I want to give a quick plug for Spartan Forge. It appears that the beta testing phase is finally closing out, and that means the app will start being available again for everyone to download. I'm using the app pretty much daily at this point to look at the upcoming weather forecast and my PTO days and meeting schedules just to make sure I'm able to maximize my time in the woods, especially in areas that are further from my house. In addition to being able to see the weather forecast and moon data, you can of course look up the historical weather information and have visibility to the Spartan Forge prediction, which is driven by machine learning from collar GPS studies. In other words, deer train their models, not humans assigning preference based on anecdotal observations. There's also a mapping component to the app, and that's something you'll even hear Rendell Eric mentioning at some point in this episode, being able to look at a little bit different imagery to help understand the land and map access and determine possible bedding. If you're planning on purchasing the app, using the code DIY will get you 25% off the price. And with that, let's dive into the episode. All right, on the podcast today, I have Rundle Eric. I have been chatting with him ever since we first met face-to-face at the Iowa Deer Classic earlier this spring, sharing notes, talking strategy, you know, sharing pictures of deer that were 
locating or looking after during the summer. And it seems like every year he finds a way to get done. He shot a great buck last year, actually won the tethered 10 contest. And he already mid-October this year punched his tag in his home state on a really great buck. So uh, thanks for jumping on the podcast. Uh, You're welcome, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So for the listeners, you're currently located in, in Iowa. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. I live in southwest Iowa. Okay. And how many years, I guess, have you been hunting in that area versus other places? I've lived here about 10 years. Okay. And would you say that your style is more so, because I guess my understanding is that for non-residents, if you wanted to hunt Iowa, you'd have to apply for points and choose your zone and pick whichever zone based on the amount of public land or how many points it takes to draw. But if you're a resident, you could basically hunt throughout most of the state. You're not necessarily locked to one zone, right? Yeah, I can hunt any part of the state I want, and the tags are just over the counter. I get one archery buck and one gun buck, but you can use a late-season muzzleloader tag for an extra bow buck. Okay, gotcha. And then if you if you own land, then you can get a landowner permit and get a third buck, but I don't own any land, so I don't get the extra third buck tag. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of people in the industry who just go ahead and move to Iowa. And I guess when you look at the, what the residents are able to do versus the non-residents, I guess I can't blame them. Yeah. It's definitely worth it. Yeah. So even though you live in a a pretty good, I guess, state in a good area of the state, it sounds like you still are are putting in a lot of time and trying to basically take an approach that would be more similar to what I'm trying to do in some of the places I hunt, which is really spread a wide net and try to find and scout a whole bunch of different places and find maybe the best in uh, certain pockets that you can go in and, and hone in on later in the season. Yeah, I'll just go in a radius about two hours from where I live, and sometimes I'll go further than that if I think something looks really good. I'm more of a, like a whatever-it-takes kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. And is it uh, a process that for you starts, I guess, early spring, late winter, doing some of that off-season scouting, or is it like summer glassing? Like what, what, I guess, starts that process for you? I believe the day deer season ends, the next one begins, and I'm out late-season scouting as much as I can. All the foliage is off. There's fresh sign. That's the best time for you to see all that stuff. So I just get out and grind it for probably over 100 miles before spring turkey season start and then a transition in the summer scouting glassing fields i think had potential from postseason scouting and then i'll kind of move cameras around and stuff more later summer just to try to find inventory and i'll pick places where i want to soak cameras at for the season because i really don't use them to pattern a buck per se or keep up with one i'm more just use it for general knowledge. I just want to know the bucks there and I want to hunt there. Okay. So the place that you actually went and ended up killing your buck this year, was that one of those places you had spent a lot of time in like February or March or whatever and said, okay, this is a pretty promising one. This is definitely one that's on my list. Or was it one that you kind of figured out later in the year? Uh, one of my buddies wanted to go shed hunting and uh, there's not a lot of type of wetlands habitat in Iowa. And I see a lot of other guys up north and stuff hunting it and on YouTube. So I was just like, oh, I go check this spot out. 
So I just kind of took my buddy down there and we were scouting more like shed hunting, but I don't shed hunt much. I'm more of a scouter when I'm shed hunting. And if I run into antlers, I run into them. Yep. But we found this willow grove and it was probably had 30 rubs in it all tore up. So it really got my attention. And I just happened to find one set of huge buck tracks and I followed them back a couple hundred yards to this uh, flooded bay area within the wetlands. And then I just made a mental note and then we kept shed hunting after that. And then later on, I just did some e-scouting later. And then I went in and I did actually put a couple cameras in there right before season started. But I, li- I never checked them at all, ever, because I usually just soak them. And if I hunt the spot, I'll check the camera after I hunt it. Okay. So it sounds like you weren't, I mean, if you hadn't checked cameras, at least in the early part of the season, and it sounded like, was there not like a whole lot of fields adjacent to this particular piece that you were glassing? Like, were you spending more time in other places gathering intel? And this one was just kind of in the back of your mind at that time? Yeah, I just run into every public land I possibly can, and I just go in, look at it, and see if it's promising or not to what I'm looking for. I look for, I don't know, I just have my own little system. I look for certain things for, predominantly I hunt more like Mm bedding-based style. So I'm looking for things that I think a big buck is going to be bedded in there and what he needs to live in there. Yep. And then I just hop around as many publics as I can. So I'm like flying in maybe one, two days on a piece and then I'm going to the next. And then I do all wind-based hunting because I don't use scent control and I do the bedding based. So I feel like I want to know, like, I think the buck's going to be bedded there that day. And that's why I'm going to go in there and hunt it. And if it's not, I just go somewhere else where I think I can get in on a buck at. Okay. So it was the first time that you stepped foot on this particular piece of land since putting cameras out was it during the season or did you do like a preseason check in there for a couple of days just to look for big tracks or anything like that no the first the day i killed the buck is the first day i was in there during the season really and was that uh I'm trying to remember the exact time was that like the 13th 12th somewhere around there it was october 11th on a monday okay okay so you go in there, was it a morning hunt? Like, were you going in in the dark, or are you setting up for, okay, I think there's a certain wind, I think he's bedded here, uh, if there is a buck bedded there, and you don't have any other intel, you're just going in midday type of thing? Yeah, I don't really hunt mornings early, because I feel like I blow more deer out when I try to get in. So I usually hunt the evenings until, like, pre-rut really starts up through the rut. So I, I went in about 2 o'clock, and scouted my way back and throw them. When we went shed hunting, I had like two spots I wanted to pre-check. One of them was that willow grove. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see if rubs were opened up yet, but they weren't. So I kept going out to this point. I was uh, e-scouting for, I had a north wind. So I was just going through all my, who knows how many spots I could hunt on public. There's a ton of public around that I go to. So I was just looking through the best possible area I thought I had for a north wind. And I just wanted to try that spot out because I figured something would be better than there on that north wind. 
Okay. So you're you're not necessarily just looking at this one piece and saying, okay, let's let's pick out a betting spot for this wind on this piece. You're looking at seven, eight, ten pieces in all the north wind betting that you could potentially hunt on that given day, and then you're making your call and, and heading out. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So then once you got to this particular piece, it sounded like maybe there's you had narrowed it down then to a couple of spots you were gonna spot check. The first one didn't have the sign you were looking for. So then you started to slip into whatever be the next best north wind betting on that on that particular piece of land. Yeah, I figured when if I checked I checked there's a a cattail marsh kinda when you first go in. Mm-hmm. And it had some rubs and stuff, but the way it sets up, they're not going to be there on that north wind. So I just wanted to check it for sign. Sure. And I kept going to the Willow Grove. I wanted to figure out, because it's early season, I don't know how far back these bucks are going to be yet, because I would assume they're not getting much pressure. Yep. So I wanted to check that Willow Grove to see if those rubs were opened up, and that would tell me if I thought he was pushed up for closer to the axis on the bedding, because there was a cornfield right by the axis so i wanted to see how far he was traveling to that so i figured he might be closer but when i got there the sign wasn't open and i was using that spartan forge the beta test version on my phone and i like the maps on that a lot and there i just noticed uh this point that it was like three quarters cedar thicket and then at the end it had some looked like hardwoods and then I noticed when I went into to the willow thicket, the water was really low on the wetlands. And I could go up this creek channel to get to the end of that point, and I could come right up out of the channel and slide right up on the southeast side of this point for the wind. Okay, and this so, po- this point, is it is there any elevation to this, or is this just like a flatland wooded point that's sticking point- out into these willows? The point rises up about 10 feet above the wetland marsh. Okay. And you said basically get up on the southeast side of that point with the yeah, with the north like wind? Yes, sir. So are you and, anticipating that buck then to, to basically come from either directly south of that point or maybe southwest of that point, but hopefully not southeast of that point where you're set up? Yeah, I figured with me going the way I was gonna access, I was just gonna I was gonna blow anything out or it was gonna see me coming in. Okay. But you're using that, I guess, lower creek bed um for I guess the purpose of that access that you're trying to stay as inconspicuous as possible up into that area. Yeah, I figured it'd hide me really well coming in because it's a lot lower than the point and the surrounding areas because it's I don't know, four or five foot low. So I figured I could just slide right in. And it's what's usually flooded's all grown up. So I thought there'd be bedding all in there. But there's an, there's another bay past the point that I thought would be really grown up with like just brush and CRP type plants and stuff. I'd hope he'd be bedded out in that so he wouldn't see me come into the point. Sure. And then on the point itself, is there any food, like any acorns left at that point in time, red oaks or any remaining white oaks, any kind of browse, or is it, are they just kind of browsing on grass and whatnot out in that, uh, that dried bay? 
Uh, the trees on the point are a walnut and a honey locust. And the honey locusts are loaded this year. And they were falling. And when they first fall, they got a really sweet lining. And they smell really good. And I think they're really overlooked for a food source. People don't think about them. But in Iowa, they're really golden this time of year. I almost think they're as good as acorns. And I, the deer go to them over corn this time of year. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we don't have a lot of honey locust where I'm at. We had some that we found when we were in Nebraska, and we sat next to a grove of them one day. Uh, I think the timing might not have been totally perfect for them quite yet. That was still early September. But I've heard of honey locusts being really good late season. So is it one of those things where deer will eat them as a preferred food source like whenever they're available, or is it more of like a right away and then once again like real late in the year type of thing? I think it's like soybeans right away. They're really good. They're tender and soft. And then once they freeze during the winter, they get good again later. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I suppose if you find a good honey locust tree, that's maybe something you can find when you're scouting in the spring and market. And then it might be good early. And then late season, maybe figure there's some pods or something underneath the snow. And then once it gets late enough, you're checking that again for a, a food source later in the year. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And on the honey locust and or the walnut, I guess there's nothing that I'm talking to you about this. Uh, when we scouted Southeast Minnesota, we ran into a couple of walnut trees, which again is something that's not really prevalent close to my house. And I honestly wasn't even sure if deer had used walnuts as sort of a preferred food source. Uh, do you see them feeding on walnuts a ton or, or not that much? I don't really think they eat walnuts at all, honestly. Okay. I've never seen them do it. If they do, I don't know about it, but I don't seek them out for a food source at all. Okay, that's good to know. So was there a lot of sign at that honey locust tree, or was there a lot of sign in general on that point once you got up to the edge of it? There was one rub, and that's all I got close enough to see. I already with When I seen the honey locust. I already made up my mind to set up there. Okay. And are you basically picking a tree that's like literally on the edge of the edge of the point to where you're off as close as possible to that, uh, marsh grass? That rub I seen went to binos when I was working up the point. Cause I didn't want to leave my ground scent too far up on it. I noticed one rub on a cedar tree and it looked like there was a main trail it was right on the transition between the cedar grove and the hardwoods and honey locusts. And there was this one small cedar tree that stuck out away from the rest of the cedars, probably like 10 yards. And I seen that rub on it. So I, I was predicting that they would come up that trail and then disperse out onto the point. So I got where I wanted to be about a 20 yard shot is what I wanted. So I found the tree that was about 20 yards with the best shooting lane I had to that trail on that rub. Okay. Do you happen to remember what kind of tree that was? Or was it, you know, like a beanpole tree? Was it multiple trunk? Was it something that was giving you a lot of cover or just the best that was available in that spot? It was a walnut tree. I'm probably bigger and bigger around than it is. It's pretty, pretty much no cover at all. But I did notice one big tree back behind me that had multiple trunks 
So I figured it'd give me some backdrop cover and I set my saddle up where I was leaned way out. So I would just blend right in with one of the main trunks that was coming off the top of it. I was about, I only set up nine feet high. Okay. And then were you set up also to where you're naturally able to look down and visually see where you're predicting those deer are going to come out of that, um, out of that bedding and onto the point? Or did you have to kind of like, you know, look over your shoulder to, to kind of see where they're coming from? With the way the wind was coming across and my access, I set up where I'm looking straight off the other side of the point to that other bay that was dried up because I figured that's where they'd be coming from. And I set up for my power shot so I didn't sit behind the tree where the deer were coming in looking at the tree. I was set sideways off the side of it so I could just draw the bow back and shoot straight down when the deer came across the point. Okay. And I can't remember if I asked earlier, but is that point basically sticking, like if we're looking at a, a map right side up, is that point sticking down like pointed south into this bedding with that north wind to where the wind's blowing right down the point? Or was it facing a little bit different? Yeah, the wind's coming right down the point. Okay. Gotcha. So if you would have just yeah. walked up hypothetically and, and sat close to that rub, like you probably would have got winded. Oh yeah, for sure. Cause there's a, the Creek channel bends in at the end of the point and I was predicting the winds to die down. Like they always usually do right at the last hour of daylight. Then that water was going to take my thermals. So I wanted to be close to that waterway. So it sucked my thermals down to it. Yep. Yep. And do you find that when, when that happens, you get that little bit of water, that little bit of wetland, that it pulls your thermals kind of down and toward it, and then it shoots them back up, kind of lofts them up in the air? Um, or are you just like, by that point, it doesn't matter. It's just pulling away from the from the high ground. No, I was predicting it was going to pull it up because the warm water shoots your scent up and the cold water pulls it down. Yep. And I guess you know, thinking ahead a little bit, and this is kind of outside the, the story, but I, I noticed the same thing in early season, how you get that, you know, that, uh, water temp being sometimes in the evening, a little bit warmer than the surrounding air and it'll pull your, your scent away and out, you know, kind of toward that water. Um, but do you ever find that throughout the course of the season that once the water is really cool, that you might get the opposite to where that water is in the evening, like say pushing your scent up onto the high ground? Uh, sometimes I find that when the water is really cold here, your scent just hugs right down on it. It doesn't really push back up onto the high ground too much. Okay. So from that perspective, like it's pretty much always a win from a thermal standpoint, trying to hug as close to that water as you can. Yeah, for me, that's like the perfect setup. That's what I'm looking for most of the time if I'm hunting by water. Yeah, yeah. And and so the other thing that, that strikes out to or that stands out to me here is that a lot of times if I'm looking at a map and I'm looking at, hey, there's this peninsula of dry ground sticking into a marsh and there's bedding out in that marsh, a lot of times the access might be such that like, okay, well, I'm coming from the northeast or I'm coming from the northwest and it, it makes sense to like walk the high ground down. That's probably what a lot of guys do. They walk that high ground down, get onto that point and set up. And by that point, they've potentially with that North wind already blowing a lot of their, their scent out into that bedding. 
and so it sounds like what you did, you almost kind of came in from like, I think it was the Southeast, right? And you came in to where like, you're not getting any of that scent in that bedding in that bay on the opposite side of the point we're expecting the deer to come from. If there was any deer bedded, like where you came from, sure. You'd blow those ones out, but, uh, it sounded like that was a risk that you were sort of willing to play with based on that hunch that they're betting on that other side. Yeah, I think that the biggest buck was going to be the furthest way back and the best bedding. It seems like the mature bucks always pick the best bedding. And just the way it's set up, I just predicted that the best bedding was going to be back there for the mature buck to be. And I was, I'm willing to risk blowing out the does that bed closer to the food and the secondary bedding, all the little bucks will be in and I'm not interested in them. So if they blow out, you know, it's no big deal. I'm going to keep going. Cause I went um, over a mile back. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. And so then on that particular day, did you bump any deer out that you know of? I didn't, I didn't bump any deer out that I know of. I went really slow and took my time getting back there. I glassed ahead of me and I was down in that Creek channel. I think if I would have came some different access through all the brush and growed up areas, I probably would have made a lot of noise and was would it... have blow my scent more into where the deer were going to be bedded at. But I find if your scent's not going in there, you can get by with uh, a lot more stuff. Yeah. And is that, creek channel that you walked through did that have any standing water in it at all or was that dry also it's just kind of grassy no, it had standing water in it still okay so were you going through the water and just like trying to keep that sloshing noise as light as possible were you kind of able to walk the edge and just stay on the the grassy parts i was able to walk the edge and stay on the grassy part for the most part until i got close to the point then i had to walk through the water but i kind of slide my feet real slow instead of stepping in it yep Okay. And then do you usually wear like just knee high rubber boots or are you going and just wearing normal leather lace up boots, hip boots? What would your kind of preference for that style of habitat? I usually wear hip boots, but I just wore regular leather lace up boots. It's early season. It was hot. Yeah. I don't care if you get wet. Sure. Sure. Okay. And then were there other deer after you got set up that ended up coming up that point first before the buck that you ended up shooting oh yeah uh right when i was getting my camera arm set up i had 12 does come in <laughs> out of that thicket and they were just hammering that honey locust and then they'd move off and then more does would come up and then i had a uh, three or four small bucks come onto the point feeding on that honey locust and they moved off towards i think they're all headed towards that corn is the way they went when they went off the point after they fed for a while yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And that just right there proves how important it is to have good wind based, you know, setup for what you're predicting. Cause any one of those does or young bucks busts and there goes your opportunity probably for the, the one you're after. Yeah, i definitely believe that I set up perfectly. If I would have went any further up on that point, all those deer would have pegged me cause they were just roaming around feeding on a honey locust right there. And all the deer pretty much stopped right before they got to the tree I was in. Some of them were even almost under me, and I was filming them feeding on the honey locust right underneath me almost. Yeah, and only nine feet off the ground, so they're pretty much right there. Yeah, you can't move or anything. It was pretty <laughs> wild. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And and so was there kind of a gap in time then between the time when those deer, I guess, flushed out and then the, the bigger buck got up and started to move or was he pretty much right on the tail end of them? He showed up about five minutes of shooting light left. So it was about two hour gap. Oh, really? So they all, they all came in and got up and flushed through and then it was quiet for a while. Yeah. But then a couple smaller bucks came out of the main bedding area, probably in secondary bedding in the main area. And they showed up first and then they worked their way off. Not too far before the big guy showed up and I didn't even see him until he was 20 yards away. And at that point, were you pretty much able, like he was on a good line, able to draw back and shoot, or was there any, any points where you thought like, oh man, this might go wrong? Yeah, I'm always thinking that, <laughs> especially those mature bucks. They're pretty smart. If it can go wrong, it usually goes wrong <laughs> half of the time. But I already had usually the last hour of daylight you know it's a magic hour so i always have my bow in my hand ready to go i was set up i could just draw straight back so i had minimum movement the other bucks came through worked the same course that the does did so i kind of was ready for them not to come up that trail that went to that rub they kind of turned off and came straight at me a little bit so I was ready to go. I turned the camera. I got it ready to go right on that spot. And then about 20 yards, I seen the really tall rack coming up to point. And then I was just zoned in on what I needed to do to make a shot on him. And this was basically a surprise at this point, right? Like, you know, there could be a good buck in here, but that was the first time that you really like got a visual of what deer was in that area because you hadn't really been checking cameras or anything, right? Yeah, I've never seen this deer ever. And I checked the camera after I shot the buck and stuff, and he wasn't even on there at all. Oh, really? So that that makes me curious. When when you put that camera up, what were you putting the camera over? And in hindsight, would you have placed that camera differently for better inventory purposes? I probably would have added a mock scrape onto the camera on the point to try to get him to come to the mock scrape because I don't – I'm not really sure how they were working up the point because I had my camera kind of facing that trail that that rub was on. Yep. Interesting. So he might not have even, he might not have even been the one that laid that rub down. Yeah. It could have been one of the smaller bucks or any of those. And I'm that big buck might've been going a different route all the other days or going around the camera. I find that a lot of times those mature bucks, well, they'll go around the cameras a lot. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that one that we were chatting about, he hasn't shown up on camera, but other bucks have. And it makes me wonder that after that encounter, like maybe he's learning to avoid that, that maybe he's still using that and he's just not showing it, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think they learn that as they smell you and there's activity in the area, they kind of avoid it for a while and they're leery of it. Yep. And then I was there hanging the camera. He could have smelled my ground scent. He could have came a different way and crossed the way I entered the day I hung the camera. And he just wanted to avoid that hot spot that I was in, leaving all my scent on. Sure. And there, there's another thing, I guess, about this this setup and the spot that you had standing corn somewhere nearby. 
And I would imagine that from the sounds of it, those deer are probably using that as the kind of, I guess, main food source after dark. Yeah, it's about a mile and a half away. That's what I think all the deer were going to. I think they were, instead of going down by that willow grove, I think they were cutting across this cattle pasture and then going out to the corn. Okay. And so do you think that, or I guess do you see or do you find a lot of times you'll get deer that will just kind of live in the corn up until it gets cut and those deer just don't show up on any kind of cameras until the corn's cut and then they just show up? Yeah, I'm 100% convinced that a lot of big bucks are just staying in the corn and that's where they live and they're never coming out until it gets combined. And that's why I even struggle early season because they never have to come out the corn. They can eat the corn and get the moisture out of the corn so they don't really need water and they can just bed right down in there all day. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be one of those, one of those things that a lot of people, I guess, have to deal with in the Midwest. Um, a lot of people talk about it. I even saw a picture on Facebook the other day of a, a deer that was stuck in a, a corn combine. Nice buck. Like he just sat there and just yeah. took it when the combine came through. Yeah. I've seen that. <laughs> it happens a lot down here too. I don't know if they don't hear it coming or don't know what it is. I don't know why they don't get up and run, but they just don't. They get run over. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's wild. But, uh, what I think what's, and maybe tell me your thoughts on this. It seems like the fact that you had that, I guess, secondary food source in the honey locust being near that bedding, maybe gave them the confidence to say like, instead of just only living in the corn, like this bedding spot's pretty, pretty good. And we got these honey locusts here that are hot. Like, let's just bed here and, and then we can hit this honey locust on the way to the corn, um, and just mix it up a little bit. I guess like, why do you think that they were using that spot instead of just living in the corn in that scenario? Um, I don't, it's public land. There's a lot of movement around there. A lot of people coming in and out of that area. The corn is okay. It wasn't very big. And I think the older a buck gets, the more he gets locked into his core area and it's a lot harder to push him out because he survived there for so many years that I don't think he wants to move to that cornfield because that cornfield's usually not his prime area because it's pretty wide open. So there's nowhere for him to adjust to when it gets harvested. He has to come that mile and a half from that cornfield when it gets harvested to find a good place to bed pretty much to have prime bedding. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he's, it's not like there's thick, heavy cover on that cornfield. In other words, it's like the cow pastures and whatever other open ground. Yeah. It's just wide open cornfield. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess knowing what you know now is, is this a spot where like next year you'll, you'll basically just have in your, your bag of tricks to say like, Hey, if this, I can spot check this if that honey locust is looking good. Like I got the tree already picked out. Like it's going to be just a repeat scenario of, of this year type of thing. Yeah. If there's a buck in there, I believe I could go right back in on the same setup and kill him. Yeah. That's awesome. I love those scenarios and those little setups like that. where you just get that, that super defined bedding. I mean, could you, could you looking at a map, like basically exactly plan out what was going to happen? before even stepping foot and walking in there and just kind of confirming with the sign? Yeah, when I looked at the map on my phone and was looking at it, I played it all out in my head and figured exactly what was going to happen. So I'm pretty good at doing that. 
I find a lot of big bucks that way. I just look at the map and I don't know, some people just have a knack for picking out spots and uh, over time, just doing lots of e-scouting and then going in boots on the ground. I think I scout so much and look at so much sign and so many areas over the years and experience, you just get a feel for it. You just, and it's just kind of like a gut feeling. Like you just know, you almost don't have to run through all these 900 scenarios in your head. You just kind of automatically do it. And you're like, he's going to be there. And then you go in with that confidence that you're going to get it done. Awesome. Yeah. You mentioned hunting pressure a little bit. Do you find that a lot of the guys around you, are they using the same type of tactics or are they, or a lot of them just like, Oh, there's, like we'll just set up on the the wood edge, like near some of this ag, and they'll try and hunt field edges and stuff like that during early season. Yeah, guys definitely aren't hunting like me. A lot of guys don't want to put in the work or they don't have time. They're setting up on the easy to get to spots, like mostly all the guys always have. And I'm going super deep. A lot of guys don't want to drag a deer that far. I mean, dragging that deer out was pretty much epic hell. I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> Yeah, so, you, you mean, get a big mature buck like that. That's I mean, it's never an easy task. Yeah, his live weight was probably 300 pounds. He field dressed at like 260. Oh, wow. And then a lot of guys don't have the saddles. They don't have the mobile gear. They think I'm crazy when they see me at the parking lot. They ask me a lot of questions. Like, I just get a lot of weird looks. Guys just can't believe that I'm going to go in two miles with this saddle and kill anything because they just never seen it before really it's still it's popular in our own little circle but when you get out in the world of hunting like guys still don't even know about a lot of this stuff yeah it's crazy to think about we just kind of constantly live in our own little bubble uh, where we're repeating these ideas and you know strategies and whatnot it seems like everybody's doing it but you're right that a lot of the places i'm hunting well I, I would, i'll say this a lot of the places i'm hunting close to the twin cities um I run into a lot of guys that are using saddles. I'll get trail camera pictures of guys walking by, you know, they got their heads buried in their phones, looking at their mapping apps and they got the, the tethered saddle on their back. Like it's gotten a lot more common and I'll go in and find like these deep, deep cattail marshes. Like I'll go hit like five islands to scout and like three of them have trail cameras on. I'm like a mile and a half deep. Uh, some have like, you know, stands and screw in steps and whatnot. Like it's, it's popular in certain areas I feel like, but, I feel like in certain age groups, it just hasn't caught on like our age, like the 25 to like, you know, mid to upper forties, I feel like it's getting more popular, but then you got all those guys who are in like their forties and fifties and like some of them are, are trying it out, but a lot of those guys are still hunting the same way that they always have. Oh yeah, for sure. I get a lot of young guys that hit me up and try to figure out my system and have me walk them through everything and help them out. But I've got some older guys that, are really interested in it. They yep. see these big some killing and they they're curious. Most of them won't ever try it, but they just want to like kind of see what I'm doing and learn about it, but I don't know. Some of them think it's just crazy, you know. I don't know how to explain <laughs> it, I guess. It's just so off the wall. <laughs> but I live in like the least populated part of Iowa and the non-resident tags being so high with the draw really helps me out. I think cause you don't get a whole lot of pressure and other guys are hunting better zones than what I have. Yeah. And I hunt 
the smaller pieces. I found the smaller pieces. I almost think intimidate intimidate guys more than the bigger ones because I guess they don't think deer live there or you blow it out really quick. But like I said, I don't think you're going to blow a deer out that easy when he's in his prime bedding area for most of his life. He's got confidence in that spot and me messing around a little bit and moving every day. I'm moving. I don't hardly ever sit anywhere two days in a row. Sometimes I'll sit an evening and a morning and then I'll get down midday and scout or I'll go to a different property. But usually I'll even go in blind in the morning and set up just by how I think the wind's doing and my postseason scouting. And that really helps you too if you're hunting in the morning as the postseason scouting because I mark trees and when I mark them, I take pictures of the trees. So I need, I know how I need to climb, where I need to be to get in the shooting lane already. So for the morning hunts, that helps out a ton is to do the postseason scouting too and have the trees ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. I was just kicking myself recently for not doing a good enough job of that in that area that they were talking about that I showed you the picture of before where I'll, there's so much land that it's really tempting to just like walk through a spot and be like, Oh yeah, I can figure, I can figure this out during the season. They just like mark the spot, but not like that intimate tree of how and where you need to set up exactly. And then you come back in the season you're like, Oh man, that's not really going to work. Like I should have done a better job at like, you know, picking this little place apart, but it's like the sign shows up where it shows up. And unless you got 200 days, it seems like to spend in the field that it definitely pays to, to really take your time and, and make sure that all the bases are covered. Yeah, I used to do that a lot too. I would just bounce in and I'm trying to cover so much ground so fast. I just kind of look, mark the sign, be like, yeah, I'm going to hunt here and I'm going to come back when I hunt and find a tree. But I find I leave way too much ground scent. I sit there and look at the trees for 30 minutes. (laughs) Okay, which ones do I need to be in and how is this going to hurt me or help me? And then you kind of argue with yourself at the tree for a while. And then by that time, you should already be set up and it's getting to be prime time because a lot of guys go in a little bit later. I've learned I need to go in early as possible when I evening hunt. If I'm scouting my way in and setting up, I need to have as much time as I can to get in there, get set up quiet, take my time. Because if I rush, I find out my setups are worse. I'm making more noise, so I like to take my time to get in there and get everything right and then i just let the woods cool off kind of like you do in the morning guys like to go in like an hour early let the woods cool down so i like to do that in the evening too let everything settle back down and kind of get in the rhythm with nature and you're just chilling up there you know waiting for a big one to walk out yeah yeah i like that what you we said too about sometimes you'll hunt a spot in the evening head right back in the morning and then climb down and go rescout again for the evening that just takes, it seems like a lot of burden off, off of the, the aspect of like trying to find a spot in the morning. It's like when you already got it like pegged out, it's like, well, he didn't come through last, last night, at least not during daylight. Like maybe he's going to come through in the morning. I find that it seems like a lot of, a lot of times, at least around me, you might get that, that mature buck sighting. Like if I have a camera, I haven't like, just, I haven't disturbed the area at all. He's just moving naturally. And it's like, okay, maybe out of a week time frame, he does something like two times during that week or he does something like maybe four times he'd be like ultra consistent. Like he's really on a pattern if he does something on camera four days a week. Right. But perhaps if you don't get him in the evening, maybe like whatever happened, like maybe a coyote ran him out of his bed and he like met it somewhere else that night, but he's coming back in the morning. Like you never know what happened. So 
I like that uh, that strategy, just giving it that one extra sit in the morning too. Yeah, I mean, you already got your sin in there, so you might as well throw another shot at it. Yep. And maybe he didn't hit your scent in the middle of the night or anything like that. Or, yeah, like you said, a coyote. Or maybe you didn't have the bedding exactly right. Or he switched food source for the night. Or who? there's a hundred million things that could have happened. But it's always good just to give another shot. And a lot of times when I go in the morning blind, I find when it gets daylight, I can't even shoot. I'm like, what in the world was I thinking up here? <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, or you or you pick a tree in the dark, and it's like, okay, I can climb this tree. It seems about right. And then you start climbing, and then you realize there's a bunch of vines and branches and stuff hanging off the backside. And by the time you get all set up, it's like already gray light. Yeah, exactly. And I climbed one the other week. I climbed all the way up, like 20 feet, and I couldn't get my platform strap around it because it was a giant <laughs> So I had to climb all the way back down and pick this little tiny tree I never wanted to be in because I was <laughs> running in the gray light and I had to get up there. So, yeah, that was just a cluster. Yeah. And and you mentioned, too, about the bedding that it seemed like a lot of those bigger bucks you find, they, they like their core area. But within that core area, is there, like, oftentimes one, like, one specific bed that that buck will use? more often than not or is there like maybe a five acre like pocket where he's bouncing around within that little five acre pocket in that cover just based on the wind he might shift a little bit here and there um but he's he's very tight in that one area it really i find it really depends on the thermals and the wind current of the wind direction if he's going to be in the same bed on multiple winds or not it's just how the landscape sets up or how the thermals are pulling in there but i usually concentrate on a bedding area versus just one single bed Mm -hmm. but if i know he's gonna be in there on that one bed i'll try it i mean i believe no balls no bucks man like you got to take a lot of risk at this i mean if you play back and you play it safe there's just too many opportunities for that buck to find out you're hunting it or you're just never going to get him in daylight so i really like to push the envelope and if i blow him out i got 40 other spots that i postseason scouter to more and i'm just going to keep hopping around until i get the job done yeah yeah well now let's let's flip that scenario around and let's say there's like let's say you locate like a 200 inch like just a giant and, and you decide that okay i'm gonna do my best at that one are you a little more conservative in that scenario that you don't want to blow them out because you don't want to give up on that one deer i don't want to say but i was hunting a 200 inch buck last year when i shot that tethered 10 buck yeah And I hopped around on that 200-inch buck for two seasons. And, yeah, when you're hunting a 200-inch buck, it changes the game a little bit. You kind of get nervous. But I feel like you still just got to go with that. my motto of no balls, no bucks, man. You just got to get on him. I had him within 50 yards twice and couldn't get a shot on him. And my either my setup wasn't right or... He just was a lot smarter than I was. That's just a different class of deer that you're chasing around on public land. To find a 200-inch deer on public is just kind of crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't think I've ever – I haven't gotten trail camera pictures or visually seen one that even knocks on the door of that. So they're, they're definitely super rare. Um, I was going to, I was gonna, I guess, go somewhere else from there too, which was it sounds like from your, I guess, general strategy – 
you know, early season hunting, bed hunting. I imagine late season is a similar type of scenario. Are you pretty much hoping that you're filling your tag prior to the rut really kind of getting going? Yeah, I'd, I'm not a big fan of the rut because I don't think you can pattern a buck. It's really hard, and a, a lot of my big bucks will leave to chase does, or a buck will show up for maybe one or two days and be gone. It's just more like a chaos, and you're just flying around. You can't really keep up with them or pattern them much other than that two-day period. You might catch that buck on camera on a doe, and you got, you know you got like two days yep. maybe to get the job done where – October 1st rolls around in Iowa and I know I got almost the whole month to get on my buck and I usually got some picked out, you know, before that. So you kind of can hunt around a while and know that buck's going to be there. But that rut for me, I kind of struggled during the rut cause I'm hunting more of that bedding style than I am rut funnels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when your scenario now where you tag out still mid October, are you looking for other states to hunt? Are you helping other guys hunt? Like, what's your what's your move from there? I've been really bored, man. Like, I just can't <laughs> see you guys hunt. Like, it's driving me crazy. Like, I went and helped my buddy. He drew in another zone in Iowa. He's from Michigan, so I've been helping him e-scout and film and stuff. And that was cool. And then last weekend, I kind of just chilled and, trick, you know, kind of get the reset for the grueling months ahead of hunting and stuff but it was just super boring so i'm getting out of here man i'm gonna go to missouri probably in the next couple weekends if i tag out fast there i'm probably gonna go to ohio and i might end up somewhere else other than that yeah it's awesome having those those options where we can still get over the counter you know pretty reasonably priced tags at these various states definitely definitely no shortage of options it's way easier to overbuy tags than to than to, I guess, limit yourself too much. Yeah, I just like to pop into the over-the-counter states, and I think it's more of a challenge because I'm going to be going in blind. I haven't even scouted or anything. I'm just e-scouting right now and just trying to pick the best spots I can. I'm just going to jump in and scout and hunt every day and yeah. try to get on. Yeah, the biggest challenge I always find with those trips is, you know, what's the hunting pressure doing? And it seems like the last, I don't know, three, five years, you run into more out-of-staters doing the same thing that you're doing. Then you end up even running into locals um, in a lot of these states. And I think it's just because people are more comfortable traveling. They, like, they're more comfortable using their apps and, you know, more comfortable camping or, like, whatever they had to do, more comfortable e-scouting. So that's that's probably the biggest, the biggest hurdle I feel like you have to overcome when doing those little over-the-counter trips. Cause yeah, a lot of, cause a lot of those guys are, do, are, are thinking, you know, they're, they're in the same, you know, circle that we're in. And so they're trying to employ the same type of strategies. Like you'll, you'll run into more common minded people. I feel like on those trips. Yeah, I definitely agree. And with the YouTube sensation of public hunting and everybody leaning that way and all the setups. Yeah. Every year it's more and more busy, but I think you just got to have confidence in yourself and it's not really being cocky. It's just, I think you just, got to know you can get it done and i'm not worried about the pressure honestly i'm i can adjust i feel like with my experience level i'm just gonna go around them and keep going or i'm gonna work harder i'm gonna go through the water i'm gonna go up the ravine the ridge i'm not worried about how far i gotta drag a buck out 
I'm just going to do whatever it takes. And a lot of guys, I don't think you're going to go the extra mile. And sometimes when you have all those guys like me out there hunting, the deer push up to the front by the access <laughs> and you don't have to go two miles back and you're hunting right by the parking lot where I can see my pickup truck. And I got a 160 walking by me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. For sure. Well, good luck for the, the rest of your season. Um, is a, a joy picking through the details of this hunt. And I feel like just going through this has validated some of the, the thought process and strategy for me, uh, when I'm hunting similar type of stuff, it's always good to hear success stories like that, where you hear the level of detail, you hear that this is why I did this, but didn't do that. And to be able to see it all kind of culminate like that, just really, I guess, strengthens the, the thought process behind all that. Yeah, anytime. I love talking deer and I love learning and talking to other guys. And I believe everybody has something that you can take away from them and add to your own little toolbox. And oh, yeah. You never know what you can learn out there. And I appreciate you having me on, man. It was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, good luck on the, the rest of your season and the, the rest of your trips. Um, we'll have to, to stay in touch. I'm sure you'll knock, knock down a couple more bucks by the end of the year with the amount of work you'll be putting in. I'm going to need all the luck I can get, I think. <laughs> all right. And if people, if people want to, uh, to reach out to you, they have any follow-up questions or anything like that. What's the, what's the best place to, uh, get a hold of you? They can look me up on Facebook. Uh, my name's Rendell Eric on there. You can tag me. I'll post this on my Facebook too. So people can find me. And then will you be posting the video of the hunt that you filmed for this one? Yeah, I'm putting all the footage together now. This is my first year self-filming, so I'm trying to hunt and edit and learn how to do all that stuff. I'm pretty rusty. My filming skills aren't that great either yet. I'm trying to learn. <laughs> yeah, that buck, I shot that buck at five yards, and I couldn't move, so I got, him on, I got the shot on film, but I needed to touch the camera down a little bit, but I'm not going to let a 175 blow out because... I touched the camera cause I was worried about getting this whole body on the cam, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you there. I'm going to try to post it on YouTube or see who wants to carry the film or whatever. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all my footage yet, but I think this next series of hunt in Missouri, I'm just going to post it on my Facebook story every day. Awesome. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.